Hi there, and welcome to the Umpal.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for this episode, I bring to you Master American Carver Todd Johnson. Check out Todd-M-Johnson.com to see his work. To say that his work is highly collectible is a serious understatement. Todd's work is as artistic and legendary as it is worthy of heirloom status each and every time. Todd started out as a sort of young pipe-making phenom who sought out masters to learn from. If you were to chart Todd's success and ability, you'd soon tire of tracking the same solid upward trend. The guy is not normal. The following podcast was recorded on July 12, 2010, inside Todd's Workshop in Tennessee. This podcast is brought to you by Monstrosity Pipes. If you like what you hear, please support the podcast by grabbing a Monstrosity Pipe today. Guaranteed for life, ugly as hell, you're going to love them. Okay, I am sitting in the workshop of Todd Johnson, great American pipe maker. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on the show. How did you first become interested in pipes in general? Well, I guess I never really became interested in pipes in general. I became interested in making pipes specifically, and I did that my freshman year in college when I had a buddy that was going to be graduating, and he smoked a pipe, and I've made things with my hands all my life and had a very well-equipped shop back home, and I decided that for graduation I would make him a pipe, and um, I'd never held a pipe, probably never seen a pipe in person, and they just weren't really on my radar screen, but I figured I could probably make one. It seemed simple enough. So I made him one, um, made it out of walnut, which, you know, I found out later was combustible, but, uh, he enjoyed, he enjoyed the, the pipe and really appreciated the thought. And that was sort of what gave me my initial, uh, foray into pipe making. And uh, as you'll find with most people that do it, it, it quickly became a passion and sort of an addiction. So... Does your friend still have that pipe? He does still have the pipe. I've I've since made him sort of a proper pipe that he can smoke. So he just uh, he puts that one in a in a box and you know takes it out whenever we're visiting or something <laughs> like that. So. After that, when was when was that? What what year do you remember? <clears throat> that was nineteen ninety nine. And so. how, how long after that did you start working with Briar? Well, only just a couple of months after that initial pipe, I made a few I made a few more. I think I made maybe two or three out of walnut and each time I sort of honed the process a little bit more. And then I realized, okay, there's gotta be a proper way to do this. I'm kind of doing it. Uh, piecemeal with what I have and so I looked online and um, that may sound very you know 21st century but at the time it was you know the first time I had ever been on the on the internet is uh, 
as they've been called. The first time I was ever on the internets was uh, in college. And so I, I went online and I found a few sites and got some information and uh, used that to figure out where I was going. And it was sort of all downhill from there. And at, at what point after 1999 would you say um, you were making pipes on a regular basis? Well, I was making pipes on a regular basis in 1999. I sort of started and, and never quit. Um, the problem then was that they weren't good. Um, and when they got good is probably a matter of opinion. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was less than... I think it was less than two years between when I first made a pipe and when I went to visit Tom Eltang in Denmark, and that was sort of the, you know, that was sort of the turning point. There were all the pipes that were pre-Tom, and then everything else post-Tom <laughs> was sort of a fundamentally different thing. So, speaking of mentors, tell me about um, who. Um, the people who mentored you along the way or influenced you along the way? Well, I would have to say, first and foremost, it would be Tom. I mean, there's no, there would be no Todd M. Johnson pipes without the generosity and, and graciousness of Tom Eltang um, back in uh, <clears throat> 2000, 2001. And, uh, you know, I think I think that was the first time he had actually had anyone to his to his workshop at least a you know at least a stranger and uh we met at what was then um the Nashville pipe show that was put on by Uptown Smoke Shop who is uh, now one of my two US dealers and um Tom paid me sort of a backhanded compliment, I think. He said something like, um, you know, these are the best things being made in America. Now come to Denmark and learn to make a pipe for real. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, I actually took him up on that, which um, he may not have offered had he known I would do it. But uh, so I, I did that, and, um, you know, it, it was the learning curve after that was so so steep that uh you know within three months of being in his workshop you know, I, was, I was i was making really really solid pipes you know um so tom would definitely be the the first person that i would credit and tom taught me more than anything else tom taught me methods to employ for making pipes that yield, they just, they simply yield better results. Um, and uh, for, I guess, about a year and a half, <clears throat> I made pipes exactly like Tom taught me to make pipes. I did not deviate in any way whatsoever. And until I had sort of, I don't want to say perfected those methods, but until they had become second nature, I didn't change or tweak anything because I wanted to, 
I wanted to learn I wanted to learn proven tried and true methods that obviously work first and then you know use that as a as a base and sort of innovate or or tweak the process or what have you after that point only and so that's that's the way I that's the way I, I handled it and um I think that served me well because over the years I have developed little techniques that uh, improve the process for me. And Tom, I'm sure, doesn't make pipes exactly like he did, you know, 11 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, But, you know, I wanted to have that solid foundation of Danish handmade pipe craftsmanship before I before I changed anything. So at what point did you decide to make pipes full time? Was that before or after uh your time with Tom? You know, it's hard to say what constitutes full time because I was a full time student at the time. So um you know, it was probably in 2001 that pipes started being the major contributing factor to my paying my own tuition. So, um, <clears throat> and I would arrange my schedule so that I had really ridiculous days on Tuesday and Thursday. I think I went to I think I went to class from 8 until 6 on Tuesday and Thursday. And then I had a seminar on Wednesday, and that would that would give me Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to work. And um, so I made, I made pipes, and then um, I also valeted cars downtown, which it's, it's a good job if you want to stay in shape, especially, uh, especially in Birmingham, where... It's ninety degrees with ninety percent humidity most of the time. So those are the those are the two those are the two jobs that I sort of had more or less full time while also being a student full time. So I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's good. Um, speaking of your education, tell me about that. Where'd you go to school and what'd you study? Well, I went to Samford, which is a private liberal, liberal arts institution. In Birmingham, and um, I studied Greek, and I studied religion, and um, got bachelor degrees in those, and then um, I went on and uh, went to divinity school, and uh, studied history, language, and aesthetics at Yale, Um, and uh, so you'll, you'll notice that my my diplomas are hanging over my lathes here in the shop <laughs> just to sort of, uh, you know, it's like, um, the little, the little Garrison Keeler bit that he does with the English majors, you yeah. know, how they have degrees that really don't qualify him to do anything. Yeah. I always say that my degrees qualified me to do nothing but make pipes. So, <laughs> you know, when I decided not to go down an academic track, um, 
these are these are not these are not degrees that qualify you for uh, many forms of gainful employment. So, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm, I'm happily employed at home. What what part of your studies do you think has played out in your pipe making? Well, you know, you would be you would be surprised, really. I think. Um, you know, language theory has so has such broad-reaching implications for the way we the way we view the world in general. But I think, just as an example, I think that there are particular definitions of given shapes out there. And if you're a purist, you'll say, "Well, no, that's." that's not a bulldog unless X, Y, and Z criteria are met. Um, but I think, I think when you look at things and you, you sort of understand the notion of things being culturally prescribed, uh, you realize that those, those essentialist definitions of things like shape um, exist only because people in power who control language or who controlled language at the time define those shapes as such. So I, I tend to take a much sort of looser approach to defining shape and, and defining lots of things, really. But, you know, a bulldog for me... And, you know, it can be asymmetrical. I've done asymmetrical bulldogs with, uh, you know, where the bowl is not round, but it still has the two grooves. I've done them where it is round and it doesn't have, it doesn't have grooves, you know. So, um, that, that's one place where there's, where there's carryover. And then, um, you know, studying, studying aesthetics is something that, Again, it has to do with language theory and theories of, of knowledge and learning and, and so forth, um, which academicians call epistemology. Um, so how we know what we know. How do we, how do we come to know what is, what is beautiful, for instance? And um, there's some pretty complex stuff going on in your brain when... Uh, when you're coming to a determination about that. So um, that that's something that I also look at and, and think about a lot. And those are very esoteric subjects uh, that have only marginally to do with, with pipes and, and pipe making. But for a certain contingent of us, they're, they're important and, you know, for good or ill, we do think about them. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, there 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 has been a good amount of carryover, and um, I have a lot of I deal with a lot of guys that are more or less sort of struggling artists, and you know I'm I'm no different really, and psychologically that really is a is a it's a big thing. I mean, it's, uh, this is not an easy, this is not an easy endeavor. You know, when you, when you put your heart and soul into something and then more or less 
throw it out into the marketplace as a commodity, there's a big part of you that feels like the judgments being made are judgments about you personally. And um, every pipe maker that I've ever talked to that does this for a living and works to support their family doing it, which again is not, it's not an easy task. It's, it's almost, you know, it's like working on commission more or less. Um, but everyone that I've ever talked to, it's like you, you've got highs and lows and you sort of, you ride the wave. Oli, you're a professional. You should know to turn your phone <laughs> off. Um, <clears throat> That's Bruce Weaver. I have to take this call. I'm sorry to <laughs> tell him something profane from me. Um, so you know, you you ride the highs and and then you sort of suffer the lows, and it's a very you know stability is not something that I would say is part and parcel of making pipes for a living. So there's a fair amount of uh, emotional baggage that comes with it. And um, I think I think initially where I was going with that is just to say that, you know, the training and sort of more or less in counseling and, and kind of working with people to, to help them get through difficult things has really been surprisingly useful in in this endeavor I get, because I do work with so many so many guys and uh, I think most of us have kind of an, an artist's temperament which is to say that a lot of times we can be babies so <laughs> yeah it's it's um it's definitely difficult to put your work out there and and I know myself you know having having stuff hanging in a gallery somewhere when that show opens up and people start coming in, it's it's such a strange feeling to see people's reaction to your work, and it's it can be just absolutely heart wrenching, mm-hmm. and and really really difficult to put yourself out there like that. Um, speaking of shapes, you you touched on the bulldogs that were kind of your your own interpretation of bulldogs. Mm-hmm. What shapes are there any shapes that you like to do more than others? I know that you do some really wonderful umvals that are kind of like an umpal volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that's one of your favorites or uh, what are some of your favorites to make? Yeah, no, I do a lot of those and um the volcano shape is sort of my you know, my shape to riff on, I guess. Um, the way that I tend to work is that uh, I guess if I were compo- a composer it would be variations on a theme you know it's um, so there are certain elements that I keep going back to and what I'll try to do is I'll I'll take a shape and maybe I have an initial conception of it <clears throat> and then if it's fairly simple I might stretch it and and stretch it and sort of push the boundaries and uh, try to push them to the limit and maybe to the point that I go too far and when I do you know I'll sort of I'll sort of pull back and um, that might that might become a shape with some degree of breadth you know from from fairly straightforward to somewhat complex Um, 
but I think the you know I think the key is being willing to take the risk to push it too far, and then to pull back because we all we all make pipes that are unsuccessful um, for, for, from an aesthetic standpoint, and every pipe maker will tell you that that they do. Um, but if you're not willing to risk that and if you're not willing to do that, then you're just, I mean, at least as an artist, you're never going to do anything. And that, that to me is, that, that's sort of boring. So, um, and you know, the other way that it works is maybe you have a very bizarre conception for a pipe shape and you start with that and then from that sort of crude sketch that just getting it out of your head and into three dimensions initially you begin to hone the shape you know to refine it and um kind of bring it to bring it to a place where it really adheres to the the design principles that you try to employ so how do you decide on a shape like, how do you decide what you're going to do next? Is you do, um, does it work off of basically, well, I don't have a commission at the moment, I'm going to do this, or how does that pan out? Well, I always have a commission at the moment, at least a commission. Um, but, you know, I've, I've listened to, to Jim Cook talk about how, you know, he's got like a, he's got like a card index that, has all of his orders listed in it. And uh, I was talking to Aaron Sissom at Uptowns recently, and he was telling me about how seven years after he had ordered it, ordered it Jim delivered his pipe to him out of the blue, you know. And uh, I think that's awesome for Jim. It's sort of the ultimate job security. Uh, he's got more pipes to make than... <laughs> than what he'll probably ever be able to to produce. So, um, but for me, I don't really keep a running list of orders. Certainly not chronologically, you know, because the the nature of my I think I think my work would probably suffer if I looked at it as like okay. Tuesday, let's see, what do I have? I've got to make this today. Okay, it's Wednesday. What do I have to make today? So, <clears throat> And I'm guessing the wood also kind of interprets what you're going to make, too, because as you, the way you work, I've, I've been able to actually watch Todd work in his workshop um, while I've been staying here for a little bit. You know, it, it's, it's amazing to me because as he starts working with a, a piece of wood, that can dictate, you know, what's feasible and what's not feasible, right? Absolutely. You know, you can't make any pipe from any block. I mean, I guess you could make any shape from any block as long as it would physically fit inside the three dimensions of the block, but it's probably not going to, you know, it's it's not going to be, the shape will not be elevated by the grain in any given block, so... Yeah, there are particular shapes that will work in particular blocks, and they have to be oriented the correct way, and and uh, you need to take advantage of all the natural, um, 
all the natural elements of the briar in order to yield the best possible shape in the wood. And when I start on a shape, you know, I may have a concept of, of what I'm going to do, say a, a blowfish, for instance. And, um, you know, and if I know I want it smooth, then I will pick a block that I know will allow me to make it smooth. If I want to blast, then I'll pick a block that will likely only yield a, a blast. But then the, the shape is largely dictated by um, what's in the wood when I, when I get into it. So that, that's kind of the, that's sort of the creative process. But then sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes I need to make a billiard or sometimes I do have a commission where you know someone has said all right you know let's 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 get this done and delivered and I'll you know I'll work on that to to get that finished and, and get it delivered so your work is in very high demand and enjoys worldwide fame as far as your workload goes is it um you know we touched on this a little bit a second ago is do you do mostly commissions or you know what percentage would you say of your work is things that are shapes requested by you to do versus work that you do yourself without the knowledge of hey somebody is in need of of this pipe from me right well the thing is i tend <clears throat> to take only very loose commissions. And what that allows me to do um, is to work and whatever I'm feeling creatively, I can make and then I typically have a ready outlet for it. Um, you know, I, I feel very strongly that Pipes should not be sold like mattresses or washing machines, as has become sort of common in the in the online uh, pipe buying and pipe selling climate. And uh, what I tend to do is I I keep sort of a, a record of all my collectors. Excuse me, I keep sort of a record of all my collectors and you know what their tastes and their preferences are. Um, you know, I even, I even know what shipping method a lot of them <laughs> prefer, which carrier, you know, which guy leaves the pipe out in the rain and which one, uh, you know, puts it on the porch. So, um, so when I work, I generally make what I feel inspired to make. And then I tend to, if that fills an order, fantastic. And if it doesn't, then I contact individual collectors one at a time and give them each an opportunity to purchase that particular pipe. And, you know, what that allows me to do is to, to pair specific pipes with particular collectors. And that, to me, is what this is about. It's it. I I don't think that sort of right of ownership should boil down to 
who's in front of their computer at six o'clock on a Thursday night or, you know, who manages to click the buy it now button the fastest. Um, you know, certainly, certainly there's nothing wrong with, uh, with seeing a product online, ordering it and having it show up at your door several days later. But for me, that, that sort of anonymity and, and the way that seems like a very impersonal method for buying and selling such a very personal item. So, you know, I know, I know most of my collectors. I mean, I, you know, I know most of my collectors' kids, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a thing. And, um, I, I try to keep collecting as personal as it, as it can possibly be. And I think at the end of the day, People appreciate that because no one really just wants to be a, a number or, or an IP address. So that's that's the way I typically handle things. And I think in the last two or three years, I've sent out maybe one or maybe two general emails to an entire list of people that say, hey, I've got a couple of pipes for sale. And um, actually, when I did that, I ended up, I, I picked up one new collector, but I also ended up offending another very good friend. <laughs> so, you know, it just is a, um, I mean, it, ha it has its benefits, this sort of idea that you have this huge mailing list and you kind of... Uh, spit stuff out into the ether and wait for orders to come back, but it just doesn't, it doesn't suit the way I tend to view this endeavor personally. So, mm -hmm. What influenced your style early on, and how has that changed over the years? Well, <clears throat> I think early, early on, you know... All you're really trying to do is develop your skills as a craftsman. And I still I still advocate this. Um, the best thing to do is to copy things that are already out there. I mean, this, this idea that you should sort of come to the table ready-made with your own style and your own sort of uh, takes on shape and so forth. I mean, that's just total nonsense. And that, you know, you need to try and learn one thing at a time. And what I tried to learn at first was pipe making as a craft. And part of that, I think, is being able to make your hands create what you see on the on the page or on the screen or right in front of you as a three-dimensional object. And once you can once you can do that, once you've developed the skill set that allows you to 
you know, use your hands as a tool like you would, you know, just like someone that's skilled with a set of chisels. You know, if you're skilled with your hands and you can make with them what you want to make, you know, what you've already physically seen examples of, then you can take that and and start to make those things that you see in your mind's eye rather than rather than in in reality. So um my early influences were, you know, were pretty pipes in the in the late nineties and early two thousand. And uh so whatever whatever was out there I would look at it and I I don't think I was at least I hope I wasn't arrogant enough to sort of say, oh, that, that looks pretty nice. Let me see how I can improve upon it. You know, my goal was to make it exactly. And um, that got me in some hot water with the, with the you've got to develop your own style crowd. Um, and that's, you know, that's fine. I, I understand that people people have their own views and opinions on on everything um but for me <clears throat> being able to replicate what was out there in the market was key in helping develop the skills that I needed to um then bring my own artistic vision to life when I was sort of mature enough as an artist to to have one that's cohesive so um, I often see guys that try to do both at the same time and usually the work just looks kind of crude and and confused and maybe they hone that through the years and and turn it into something but I think methodologically they would be better served to learn how to use their hands first you know learn how to learn how to paint and then worry about being a painter, you know? So, um, and that's what I advocate to guys. And I, like, if guys copy my shapes, cool, no problem. You know, my only thing is get them right. You know, if you're, you're going to copy one of my shapes, get it right, do it exactly right. And then, you know, then do your own, do your own take on it, you know? So, translating that into how your work has changed over the years, would you say, can you make a basic generalization like, well, it, it went from, you know, besides just the, the replication that you spoke about, um, would you say that it, it's gotten less uh, dainty and, and more meaty, or, or is there any kind of generalizations like that that you could say? Well, I think it's gotten less Danish and uh, more American or Merkin, uh, if you prefer. And uh, I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure I know how to translate that. Um, I think I tend to prefer a more masculine aesthetic, and it doesn't that doesn't mean that I don't create 
certain pieces that have um, that that have a, a sort of feminine quality, or um, you know, pieces that are very delicate and elegant. Um, I I do that as well, but I I tend to uh, favor certain proportions that again trend towards uh, being more more masculine. And um, yeah, the I guess the other thing I would say is that I have begun working with color, which is um, I'm not. I'm not sure that the pipe world at large is 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 ready for that, but <laughs> that's you know I'm not entirely concerned with the pipe world at large. I am narrowly concerned with my work and putting it out there in a way that I feel like is genuine and you know, draws on my own very real inspiration and and so forth. So uh, generally, I would say that it's gotten <clears throat> less Danish. Um, but I don't know that there is a cohesive, well-developed American aesthetic that you could point to and say, you know, it... it it's more in line with this. I think there is a cohesive set of engineering principles that you can point to and say, this is American-style pipe engineering. And you know, I think that's one of the greatest contributions that American pipe makers have currently yielded to pipes and and pipe smoking the world over. Um, I have a, a Russian friend who um, reads the boards, reads Russian language boards, and it's now just offhandedly referred to as American-style engineering. Okay, tell me about one of your biggest pipe-making successes. And what I mean by that is... Um, once you were done with with a piece, you felt like, yeah, this is this is really spectacular, um, beyond the scope of anything I've done before, something like that. Um, maybe the first one was in like two thousand and four, two thousand and five. Maybe um, I did a shape that I called the Inuit, and it was it was a speared whale. And, um, you know, that, that shape had, had sort of been conceptualized before, but in a very, um, uh, in a, in, in a subtle way, I guess. So, um, the Inuit was basically a speared whale, speared with bamboo, and, the difference between this and kind of what had come before is that I really, I really wanted to just make it explicit and say, "Look, people, this is a speared whale." <laughs> and, uh, um, so it was, it was a bit more representational than what had had been seen before, and it actually had an ivory 
spearhead um, that was, it, it wasn't actually joined to the bamboo with sinew, it was joined to the bamboo with stainless steel, but it was then wrapped with sinew so that uh, you know, had this, this smooth... Um, the smooth pipe with pierced with black bamboo and and a white uh, white ivory spearhead and the sinew and then um, ivory on the stem and it actually the spearhead came off and it had a little foot and it would sit on its foot which was no larger than maybe half the size of your pinky fingernail and it would it would balance on that it was probably about eleven inches long with the bamboo. And um, it, was a, it was a very delicate piece, and the grain turned out exceptionally well. And everything, you know, there wasn't a thing about it that I would have changed if I, if I had to do, do over. And uh, that's kind of a rare experience to finish a pipe and, and not have any, well, if I did this again, I would fill in the blank, you know. Um, so that was, uh, that, that was a pipe making success to be sure. And I've done the shape several times since then and kind of spun it out as, as far as it would go, I think. Um, so I, you know, for me, speared fish now are kind of like, the culinary equivalent of molten chocolate cakes or portobello mushrooms. They were <laughs> big in the 90s, and uh, and uh, now they're sort of sort of played out. There's not a lot. There's not a lot of originality left to be left to be had there. I don't think so. I've sort of stopped doing them, but um, you know, I'm excited to see if there's some other conception of the shape that, that someone comes up with that makes it makes it fresh again. So excellent. I'm actually working, <coughs> working on a, a, a speared um, reindeer. That's I I think um, I think that is the next great shape. Is the I'm, I'm glad you agree. The speared reindeer. I'm glad you agree. Um, um, I could go with a speared cat. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about one of the shapes that didn't work out that you wish did, that that something happened along the way that just didn't pan out the way you wanted to. Um, gosh, let's see. I, uh, you know, the truth is there are a lot of shapes that don't work out, Ellie, but they don't. You know, they, they, um, there are relatively few sort of catastrophes that, that stick in the mind, you know, always it's just, uh, you know, I wish, uh, I wish it, it had been a little thinner here or a little wider there. Um, you know, I think for me, when a shape doesn't, work out it's I view it more as an opportunity than I do uh, a failure and um, because I think sometimes uh, while a shape may not work conceptually uh, 
it may still offer certain things that you can put toward a new or a different conception of the same shape. So when something doesn't quite work out, I tend to view it more as part of the process of honing that shape and and turning it into what it should be rather than <laughs> rather than what it is at the time. So tell me about some of the rare materials that you use in your work. Um well, I use a lot of ivory. Um, I love to work with ivory because, um, you know, because it is rare and uh, most of it's old and it's in uh, in short supply. So, I mean, the, the fact that it's sort of precious is, um, to me, an appropriate pairing with briar, which itself is uh, hard it's hard fought, you know, uh, getting briar from the ground to to the pipe maker. So, um, so I work with ivory, and then I use now a lot of um, <clears throat> vintage bakelite, which is just a just a tremendous pain to to work with. Uh, it gums up your tools. It's toxic when it's when it's atomized, you know, the dust is toxic. It's, uh, it can be brittle. It breaks when you try to bend it. Um, it will discolor with too much heat. You know, it's just, again, it's just a real pain. And, uh, therein lies the appeal for me is that, uh, when you, when you work with it, you know, it requires skill for one thing. And then, you know, to, to kind of master it is, something of an accomplishment. Uh, so I, I use those, and then, um, you know, I have some some uh, narwhal ivory, which is basically, um, you know, it's like a creature out of a, out of a really weird fairy tale. It's, a, it's basically a small, kind of like a pilot whale um, with this, sometimes up to six foot long curling unicorn tusk that's straight as an arrow that comes right out of the, the center of its head. And they're actually, I believe, extinct. Um, someone may be able to correct me on that. Um, but if not, they're they're out there in, in only very limited quantities. And I was given um, a, a piece of this six or seven years ago. Um, by a friend and a collector of mine up in Connecticut that that collects nautical items, uh, so that's probably the rarest <laughs> material that I that I work with. Um, and I work with Mimo's extra extra quality plateau, which might be the rarest material of all. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> so. When making a pipe, how do you begin? Do you begin on paper or on a block or a little bit of both? Um, really, neither. Um, I, I do I do draw shapes a lot, um, mainly just as a way of getting those ideas onto onto paper so that they don't go the way of most ideas. You know, just sort of drift off into the ether, but. 
I rarely draw on a block unless it is something that I'm going to turn on the lathe in the two-jaw chuck, and then, of course, you have to locate your your holes and, and your angles and, and so forth. But I typically will sit down with a block and have an idea of some shape that it will that it will make and uh, almost every plateau block has a volcano a Dublin and a blowfish in it you know those are sort of and you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think that but it's all based on how you orient it so if you orient it on its side and the block is is wide enough you you've got a blowfish say like uh, like bang would do kind of you know, flat, flatter and, and wider. Um, you know, if you turn it with the plateau toward the bottom, then you there's usually a volcano in it toward the toward the front of the bowl because it will all sort of, uh, you know, it fans out at the plateau and then it goes up narrowly and has bird's eye on the other side. And of course, if you turn it over, um, you know, you've got the small bit of uh, bird's eye on the bottom and then that fans out larger at the top where the plateau is so you've, you've got a Dublin and uh, I mean there are just there are infinite variations on on those shapes so um, you know I look at it more like what approach am I going to take to utilizing the best thing this block has to offer rather than you know what what specific shape am I making. So I'll typically sit down and make, you know, make some initial, uh, I, I call them cuts, but I guess they're actually, you know, grinds, <laughs> some initial grinds that really cut into the block. And, you know, at that point, I've got to start making decisions. And those decisions aren't really made until, until I have physically cut away sections of the wood that would preclude making one shape or another. You know, so one of the things that Lars taught me in his workshop is he said, you know, keep keep all your options open and delay delay any decisions about the wood as long as you possibly can. So um, that's something that I've I carried with me in in terms of my own shaping methodology. How do you grade and stamp your pipes, and how has that changed over the years? Well, I used to <clears throat> I used to stamp when I did rusticated pipes. They were uh, they were Spartan grade pipes, and the blasts were Athenian, and the smooths were Alexandrian. But what I realized. Um, what I realized after several years was that these were designations more than they were grades. So if every rusticated pipe was a Spartan and every smooth was an Alexandrian, then you know what's the point of uh, <laughs> what's the point of marking them as such when they're clearly visible as rusticated or as smooth or as blast. So, um, so I stopped, I stopped doing that, and um, my uh, my sort of Uber stamp was the Hopalite, which was um, this is kind of a kind of an elite Greek warrior, um, 
and uh, so the the <clears throat> the Spartan plumed helmet is is my stamp for for hoplite, and um, as with as with any endeavor, at some point you realize that you have made something that just completely falls off of your grading scale and you know even what you have as a as a grade that you may give 15 pipes a year is not sufficient to designate this as being as exceptional as it is and so um so I came up with a phalanx and a phalanx Q. Um, and the Q was something that one of my collectors kind of helped me develop because he said, you know, this this is the quintessential Todd Johnson pipe. It has this, it has that, it has that. You know, it was very much, um, you know, it was very much me sort of in the form of a of a pipe. You know, all of the... All of, all of the techniques that I prefer and all of the little things here or there that make my work what it is was kind of embodied in this piece. And so he said, you know, this is, this is a quintessential Todd Johnson pipe. So, so that's where the, where the cue came from. And, uh, yeah, I think I've made, excuse me, I think I've made three or four of those. And, uh. You know, if I went back when I had that grade and applied it to everything I've ever made, <laughs> then there might be five, you know. So, and I, I realized that th there, are, there are collectors who don't like when a pipe maker sort of creates an uber grade above their, their special grade, but... Um, there are pieces that that simply justify that, and obviously you can't you can't just keep doing that every every six months. But uh, I've been making pipes for ten years now, or eleven years now, and uh, I've got all the grades that I'm ever going to have, <laughs> and I don't need to go I don't need to go any higher with anything or whatever. So you know, the the grading system is stable. It, has been established. <laughs> About how many pipes a year do you make now? Um, you know, less than I used to. Uh, probably, um, <clears throat> this year I'll probably make, I'll probably make 75 to 100 pipes. And, uh, you know, next year I'd like to make between 65 and 70, you know. Um, so, it's, the, the longer I do this, the more time I prefer to spend on each, on each pipe. And, you know, honestly, I just don't make a whole lot of turned shapes. I don't do a lot of billiards and apples and Dublins on the lathe because um that's just not that's just not really um it's not what gets me going and I have a couple of 
couple of things that I'm working on now that will that will yield uh, quite a few uh, billiards and apples and Dublins and authors. Um, but uh, you know, for the for the handmade sort of artisan stuff, I think making fewer pieces of of the highest quality is an enviable goal. Um, I would love to be, I'd love to be Teddy, you know, make 15 pipes and spend half the year in this little mountain village in Italy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Teddy's, Teddy's worked long and hard to be able to do that. So, Are there any pipes that once you've made that pipe, it's really hard for you to part with? No. Uh, no, I mean, for me, the for me all of the all of the joy is in creating, and uh, I I don't derive my joy in pipes from possessing the object. I I derive that joy from from creating it and from you know sort of steering it in the right direction and then ultimately ending up with something that it will be someone else's joy to to possess. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of guys, that's a pretty common question, you know, because we all love pipes, but I love different things about pipes. Um... You know, and I'm I'm happy smoking my Dunhill Group Ones and all the pipes that I've traded with other with other pipe makers or been given as gifts from uh, you know from my students and so I don't ever I don't ever really finish something and think hey, you know what I think I'm gonna keep this <laughs> so. What's your favorite tobacco that you smoke right now? My favorite tobacco is and has for a long time been Dunhill Aperitif. And um, I've got got quite a stash of it. I bought out the owl shop before I left New Haven. And I've been sitting looking at the same reams of tobacco in there. Um, they had turned into something of, of an upscale... <clears throat> men's accessory store by the time I was there. I mean, it's a, it's an old and, and, uh, storied establishment, the owl shop, but they had to, they had to change to survive, adapt. And, um, so they started selling a lot more shaving accessories and a lot more, uh, or a lot less tobacco. So I watched these reams of lane, um, Dunhill Aperitif sit in these sleeves for maybe, I guess for three years, and then I asked the I asked Joe, who's, he doesn't own the place, but he's work, been working there now for going on 40 years, and um, he also went to the Divinity School. Uh, but anyway, I, I asked him, I said, so Joe, how, how long have those... How long have those reams of tobacco been, those sleeves of, of tobacco been sitting there? 
And he said, oh, gosh, maybe, you know, I don't know. We probably have, you know, we sell one every now and again, but uh, those have probably been there for, for 10 years. So um, I guess in five or six years ago, I bought all these sleeves of a pair of teeth, and they were they were eight or 10 years old then. So um, I've, got a, I've got a good amount of it. And then... Uh, I smoke that a lot, and uh, I've got some old Durbar also that I smoke, and um, for anything new, I sort of outsource my, outsource my tobacco uh, um, choices to, to Jody. Jody's always, you know, finding something, you know, finding something that he likes, and we like the same sort of blends, um, love Orientals and love Latakia, and, uh, I can pretty much count on the fact that if Jody says it's good, I'll like it. So, you know. What do you like to do in your spare time when you're not making pipes? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> what is not making pipes? Um, you know, I've got I've got three kids and they're six, so um, I do a lot of uh, do a lot of coloring and a lot of painting and. Um, Go for a lot of rides in my old truck and uh, lots of swing pushing and uh, <laughs> and those sorts of things. I mean, I uh, I sort of make a living at my hobby, so it's I'm not I'm not sure I, I'm not sure what I do in my spare time. Honestly, <laughs> I mean. You've got you've got two you've got two boys as well, so I'm sure you're you know, in the in the same boat. I mean I I sort of eat as a hobby, you know, I'm kind of a, a hopeless foodie and um I'm doing I'm I'm in the middle of what I call my get less fat campaign though. So I've been doing less eating and uh two of my collectors um if you're listening thanks guys i'm less fat now because of you two of my collectors have inspired me to run which is something that when i stopped training uh i decided i had college scholarship offers and i decided not to play football in college and i said okay i'm never gonna run again and i pretty much made good on that up until a couple of months ago and uh so uh, these guys, both who you know are thin and fit and so forth, they both talked about how yeah, a few years ago I weighed you know I weighed two seventy or whatever, and I said you know what, damn it, I'm gonna start running, and uh, so I've been I've been doing that, and I I still hate it, and I still think uh, I still think recreational runners are insane, but uh, if I can get back down to to where I can just keep running and, you know, eat whatever decadent fare I, I want, then uh, then I'll do that. So, what is some of that? Some of your favorite decadent fare? Speaking of, well, you know, I have certain uh, chefs that I really like, and uh, you know, certain certain restaurants. I think my favorite chef is probably Sean Brock, who um, who is at McCready's in Charleston, where um, we used to live, and to keep a house um 
So I always eat, uh, always eat there when, uh, when we're in Charleston. And uh, he used to be here at Capitol Grill at the at the Hermitage in in downtown Nashville. And then um, I love Wiley Dufresne, who does molecular gastronomy, which is kind of like a <clears throat> Kind of like this weird hybrid of uh, of of science, art, and and food preparation. And his restaurant in Manhattan is called WD Fifty, and usually the menu is edible. So after you, after you uh, decide what you want to eat, you can uh, you can eat the menu, which is often very tasty. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's funny because I think the way that a lot of people are about wanting to collect certain pipe makers, I am about wanting to eat the food of particular, um, particular chefs. So yeah, maybe can eating be a hobby? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. All right. That's my, hobby. that's what I do in my spare time when I'm not making pipes though. For uh, folks out there who want to be pipe makers, what is what are some bits of wisdom that you can share with those um, budding pipe makers? Uh, don't <clears throat> don't quit your job too early. Um, you know, I mean, if you're making a decent, steady living and you're making pipes as a hobby, you are in the ultimate position because you can spend 40 hours on a pipe and make sure that every aspect of it is just perfect exactly the way you would want to do it and you're still getting paid when you become a professional pipe maker you know unless you're goto who also i guess is only a (laughs) part-time part-time pipe maker so Maybe that doesn't even hold, but I was going to say, unless you're Goto, you can't spend 60 hours on a pipe and and that be okay, you know? So, um, that that's one thing that I would say is, is essentially just that being a professional pipe maker is not all it's cracked up to be. It's, it's great and I love it, but it does not come without its challenges, you know? The other thing I would say is is basically just, you know, don't don't try to don't try to do it on your own because you're gonna you're gonna spend years trying to figure out things that you could learn in days, um, and that was the way it was for me the first time I ever went to Tom's shop. I was just like, you know, in twenty years I never would have thought to do X, and. It's not that these are sort of closely guarded secrets. These are just methods. They're just methods that you don't know. And so if you if you work with a with a pipe maker that, you know, sort of knows all this stuff, then that knowledge will be passed on to you and it will make your process much easier because instead of kind of groping around in the dark looking for ways to accomplish some particular thing you know you have that handed to you on a plate okay this is how you do x then all you've got to do is get good at it you know you don't have to figure out how to do it and then how to get good at at that you just have to you you just have to figure that out um the other thing i would say is don't wait to bring your work to market 
until you think it's perfect because the guys that do that are the guys that never really become pipe makers. You know, no one, no one sort of comes to market without anything to work on, without it, you know, I mean, everybody, <clears throat> everybody has early work and, um, I've seen, I've seen some of Bo's early work and I've seen, um, you know, I've seen some of Kent's early work and it all, I mean, it all looks very crude by comparison to what they, <clears throat> what they did or what they are doing, you know, at a point in their career where they've really honed their, their craft. So don't be afraid of having that stuff that's out there that will necessarily make you cringe at some point in the future. But there's no way to get where you're trying to go and avoid avoid making that stuff. You just, you can't do it. So suck it up. Make all the pipes you can make and put them out there, you know. What can we expect from Todd Johnson in the future? Um, well, like I said, I've been working with color, and a lot of that is inspired by Dale Chihuly, um, who is a, who is a glass artist, and, um, you know, he said he woke up one day and he realized that everything he did, shape and form and proportion and so forth, were all just a commentary on color. And so he decided he wanted to use all 360-some-odd colors that were available to him in the hot shop. And, uh, and he started creating uh, these, these pieces that he called macchia, which just means spotted in Italian. And um, his, his mother called them... His mother called them the uglies. Before, before they had uh, come upon the name macchia, his mother called them the uglies. And uh, so... You know, I'm probably gonna do some uglies, and uh, I've been uh, I've been collecting vintage bakelite, and I've I've done a few I've done a few pieces recently that incorporate multiple colors in the in the stem, and uh, so I tend to explore that some more, and um, I have some other materials that I am going to be working with. I have a couple of materials that I'm actually having manufactured. And then um, I'm working on some some stuff that will tie my love of high-performance automobiles and pipes together. So look out for that. Um, other than that, I'm not. I'm not sure what to expect from Todd Johnson in the future. <laughs> so. Well, that all sounds awesome. Um, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to uh, chat for a bit. I really appreciate it, and uh, can't wait to see what's what's next out there. And if you don't know Todd's uh, email, or I'm sorry, if you don't know Todd's web address, Todd, Todd, if you wouldn't mind telling the folks what that is, it is just Todd M. Dash Johnson.com. 
Cool, and you can also follow him on Twitter. Is it okay that I tell everybody that? Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's that's the <clears throat> that's the place to go these days. You see all the pictures of stuff in progress. So. Cool. So follow Todd on Twitter um, to check out what he has in progress and and what's going on in his workshop. And his Twitter handle is also Todd. It's Todd underscore M underscore Johnson. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Todd. Thank you, Ollie. It's been a real pleasure, man. And that was my chat with the amazing American pipe carver Todd Johnson. I've had the pleasure to study with Todd Johnson at his studio in Tennessee a number of times now, and the amount of info and talent this guy has is nothing short of awesome. And I mean awesome in the truest sense of the word. Even if you think his work is beyond your personal collection, something beyond what you can afford, think again, save up for a down payment, get serious and plan on the acquisition. This isn't just another pipe. This is world-class, hard-to-get art that is still available to us. Many thanks to our sponsor, Monstrosity Pipes, for making this podcast possible. Please consider picking up a monstrosity today, and you'll be supporting the podcast. This is Oli with Oompal.com, wishing you very good luck trying to decide what kind of Todd Johnson pipe is going to be next in your collection.